But at the end of the day, you know, if you're doing it, like, why do people say they like hinge cuts? Well, it's, it's, it's bedding cover and it's a maintained food source for years to come. Well, the same thing happens if you cut that tree completely off on the, on the stump, you know, you're, you're getting that tree on the ground, you're creating a little bit of cover, but that tree is going to stump sprout most likely. So you're still getting a food source coming there, but you're not dealing with uh, a live tree parallel to the ground that that you got to not navigate. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and whether you're ready or not, Christmas is right around the corner. And for many of us, uh, the end of deer season, unfortunately, is right there on the horizon. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but but for me, that means my attention's going to immediately turn to habitat projects here on my 15-acre fixer-upper to start preparing for, for next deer season. You know, as soon as one deer season ends, uh, my mind is shifting to what can I do to make next deer season better. Uh, I got plenty on my to-do list from four stand improvement work that I need to finish up this year. Uh, I want to finally get my first prescribed burn completed on the property. That is my top priority. I have some plenty of, of non-native invasive trees and shrubs that I need to get rid of and a food plot that I'm wanting to expand and kind of improve the soil in. So lots of things to get done, uh, at least to keep me busy until till turkey season rolls around. So I'll be working on those projects and to kind of help guide me and help guide you guys through work this habitat season. We're going to be talking today once again to Zach Vakirovich of Whetstone Habitat about the things you can start doing or start planning to do this time of year, you know, right as deer season closes um, to improve your property. Zach covers a broad range of topics from, again, forest stand improvement, prescribed fire, food plots. We discuss management plans and a whole lot more. So if you're into that thing, if you if you love habitat improvement and work in the land, this episode is definitely for you. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA sponsor, Renews Outdoor Equipment, makers of the Furminator food plot implement. Uh, the Furminator is a, a rugged, professional-grade, all-in-one food plot implement. It has adjustable discs to break the soil. It's got a seed hopper to make sure you're you're dropping that seed at the at the proper rate, and then a cult a cultipacker to pack the seed into the soil. So it makes it possible to complete the entire food plot planting process in one pass. So if you want to take your food plot planting to the next level, be sure to check out the Furminator at thefurminator.com. Hey, if you're a college student looking to gain some experience in the wildlife field, NDA is once again offering six-month internships that'll run from January 1st to June 30th. Uh, these interns will assist the conservation department in things like identifying research funding opportunities, uh, developing educational materials, engaging in legislative efforts, uh, as well as hunter recruitment efforts, and uh, possibly helping with NDA certification programs like our Deer Steward program. Now, these are unpaid internships. Uh, they just require about five to 10 hours of work per week. 
Uh, but it's some great experience. Uh, sometimes you can get credit to your college on that. You'll have to check with your your school to find out if that's the case. But uh, regardless, it's excellent uh, experience, and and that's important when you're trying to get a job in a very competitive wildlife management field. So if that interests you, you can apply for that. Uh, go to our website at DeerAssociation.com and look for the employment opportunities link in the menu. Or you can simply send a one-page cover letter and resume to Kip Adams, our Chief Conservation Officer, at Kip, K-I-P, at DeerAssociation.com. That's his email address, and those need to be in by December 20th. Uh, one more thing before we jump on the phone here with Zach. Uh, we're in the process of giving away a Moultrie Mobile Edge cellular trail camera. So that's their latest cellular trail camera. Uh, we're also going to throw in one of our popular NDA caps in that first light Spectre camo pattern. No purchase necessary to be entered. All you got to do is head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com slash Moultrie. That's M-O-U-L-T-R-I-E. And you can get signed up. We're going to be giving that away right after the first of the year. And if all goes well with this giveaway, that is this something we're going to start doing more of for members of our email list. Uh, and all you got to do is head over to our website and get signed up for that. And you might end up with a new Moultrie Mobile Sailor Trail Cam. So you can't beat that. And with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone here with Zach to talk about some postseason habitat projects. Hey, Zach. Well, welcome back to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, appreciate you taking time out to come on here and, and talk with us for a, a second time now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah not a problem. And enjoyed our, our last conversation on, um, on uh, sanctuaries and kind of best practices for those. And uh, I won't make you dive back into your background this time. You know, obviously we covered that on the previous episode and Anybody who wants to, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about Zach, you can check out, I believe it's episode 23. And um, yeah, where, where I talked to Zach and uh, like I said, he gave some of his background, talked about best practices for deer sanctuaries. Um, but before we dive into today's topic, I would like to hear just a little bit about uh, how, how your season's gone so far. Yeah, my, my season, I mean, I, I tagged out early in Kentucky. I got my first velvet buck this year. Um, nice. It was it was probably the best buck that was, oh, it was the best buck that was consistently using our property. Bender, we've been calling him. Um, it is really cool. Um, my brother actually saw that deer the year before at 20 yards. And my brother only makes it out one or two times a year to go deer hunting. He was, because I told him last year, I was like, you might see Bender in there. And like, <laughs> it would have been his best deer with a bow by a long shot, but he kind of understands what we're trying to do on the farm as far as our, our, our age structure and stuff. And I was so proud of him. He let that deer walk, took some cool pictures of it. So the fact that I was able to harvest that same deer a, a year down the road when he put a few more inches on him, um, just kind of reiterates the fact that, uh, yeah, there's, there's no substitute for time and letting them walk. So it was a good season. It's, that's the only buck I've got so far. I, I had a couple encounters in Ohio. Um, I've been bouncing back and forth between the two states. I've got, I've got taken two does so far off my farm. I got two more tags um, for Kentucky. Um, took out a new hunter a couple of weeks ago. Got him on his first doe. So we're we're meeting the doe quota. My dad still hasn't got a buck at the family farm, but uh, my season overall is. It, I like tagging out early. I'm gonna I'm gonna start trying to do that so I can do a little more exploring. <laughs> I, uh, 
I uh, did my first quail hunt the other day. I, I did my first duck hunt last week. I went down to Missouri for my first duck hunt. So been doing some traveling and uh, taking advantage and not being so stressed out about punching my Kentucky buck tag. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess I guess it was two seasons ago. Now I was able to to kill a good buck on opening day, and man, it did take so much pressure off. Not that there should really be pressure <laughs> when it comes to deer hunting, but you know how it is. And uh, I was thinking, yeah. like, man, do I? <laughs> Do I start getting back into golf? What do I do? <laughs> I got all these ideas. I got all this time on my hand. I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating. Yeah. But. Yeah. That, that is the one nice thing. I'm, I'm originally from Kentucky, you know, which is a one buck state. So like you said, you kill your buck opening day, you're kind of done there. Uh, unless you, you know, hit, hit a, a one of the bonus hunt type situations. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's one nice thing about Georgia. We we are allowed two bucks, so you can you can kill one opening day and and still be uh, still be out there chasing them, be a little more picky, however you want to do it. But see, I wish uh, every state would go to a. One <laughs> <day>. <laughs> oh yeah, well you know it's a, it's a, a grass is always greener situation. Yeah, gotta, it's, it's it's for sure a balancing act. You, and man, you, God bless whoever's in charge of those those uh, especially deer policy decisions. Oh man, yeah, I, I do not. <laughs> Nobody's ever happy with <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because you hear a lot of Georgia hunters say, "Oh, we need to be, you know, we need to be a one buck state like Kentucky," or you know, it's always again that grass is greener type scenario. Everybody looking at other states, and and there's a lot more variables than just you know how many bucks you're allowed to kill when you're comparing. Georgia to Kentucky or Iowa or you know whatever the case may be, but yeah, I, f- I found out the other day in Missouri when I was out there that uh, if you kill Spike and he's less than like uh, don't quote me on this, but three or four inches is Spike, uh, he counts as an antlerless. And I was thinking, I've had a few buddies accidentally pull the trigger on Spikes, thinking it was a big doe, and uh, their their Kentucky season was over. So yeah, yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> Good deal. Uh, any any big plans for the the rest of the season? I guess you're just gonna s- still uh, keep plugging away there in Ohio, trying to fill a tag. Yeah, I'm gonna go back to Ohio in a couple weeks, try to fill one. Um, there's muzzleloader season coming up in Kentucky, uh, so I'm gonna take. I'm gonna go fill my dad. He still hasn't got a buck, so um, he's been so gracious in helping uh, me try to get some film. He wasn't present for the buck I took this year. I did get that on film, but I did it myself. But uh, I'd like to return the favor. So muzzleloader season, we're going to go out there and whether it's me trying to potentially uh, do a little a one man drive, try to get something stirred up. If it's a little slow, I'd, I'd just like to get, get him on a, on a nice deer, all the work we put in. So the rest of the year is going to be out filling doe tags and uh, trying to help my dad get a, get a buck on film. Yeah. Well, there's definitely, definitely nothing wrong with that. And man, Ohio, they have, uh, They've got one of the latest closers, I think, in that that part of the country, don't they? Isn't it? When I used to live February? there, it was, yeah, it was first weekend of February. So usually okay. it's around my birthday's February third. So usually right around my birthday, the Super Bowl. There's a lot going on that time of year. <laughs> <laughs> Groundhog's Day for those that diehard Groundhog celebrations. <laughs> there you go. Well, by the time this this airs, you know, deer season's going to be on the downhill slide i guess in in many areas not not everywhere but a lot of the the midwest and northeast states will kind of be in that final month of deer season and i know for for many of us that means you know we start to turn our attention to what we'd like to accomplish on our hunting properties in the coming year um so i guess just kind of start us out with a high level discussion of of some of the things that that you're recommending 
for this time of year or, you know, coming up here soon in the new year? Uh, what what type of habitat projects or planning that kind of stuff are you um, you thinking about this this time of year? How much time you got? This is, <laughs> this is where I <laughs> well, let, like I said, let, oh, let's okay. hit it. Let's hit it at the high level first, and sure. then we'll dive into some of the some of the actual projects. You know, a little more in depth. But yeah, so so this time of year, it, it's really as as far as my my phone line goes. This is about the time of year where, where it starts picking up, and I'm start booking out clients here coming into. The season, because what happens is everyone, they've been putting all this work in all last year trying to get ready for the steer season and, and it might just not pan out, you know, and whether that be something that the landowner did that resulted in the season kind of not panning out, or it might just been the acorn drop that year could have been crazy and they just think something's going wrong. You, you never know. Right. Um, but it's about that time of year where people start getting frustrated and wanting to do something different. So I, I, I can't recommend enough, whether it's me or a, a state employee that works for your state wildlife agency, public, public land biologist, whatever it be. Uh, NRCS is another great resource. Getting another set of eyeballs on those property on your property or at least at least thinking about scheduling something. To get somebody out there and try to get a, a fresh set of eyeballs on on your place, kind of explain what's going on. I think that's always important, even if it's just your neighbor. Um, that I, I think that's where everyone needs to start. We all get stuck in our ways. I do the same thing. Um, I, I still contact regularly the, the state lands biologist, private land biologist with the state of Kentucky and, and have questions for him about my farm. Just because... I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> if I'm doing something wrong, I, I want to know, and I might not realize it until someone else comes in and, and, and can tell you and shed some light on, on the way they see things, you know? Yeah. If you're sitting there and you're seeing the same tree every year, it doesn't seem like it's growing, but you get someone come back every couple of years and they might notice a difference in, in the landscape type effects of, of your management practices. So getting a second set of eyeballs, like I said, it just anybody that that knows anything about about habitat i think can go a long ways and getting that conversation going and getting some ideas squared away as far as what what the next year should bring as far as habitat goes um i think inventory is is another one this is this is huge and people don't really they kind of understand what it means when i say take an inventory at your place and i'm not saying you need to be out there with a clipboard and you know a calculator and and figuring out a pellet count survey for your farm but if you get a fresh snowstorm and you, you, you got some time, I mean, go walk around a couple of days later, see where those tracks are going, see where those deer are bedding, go, go visit some of those bedding thickets you might've cut in last year, see how they're utilizing them. Just get boots on the ground and, and, you know, take your time walking the property. You're going to learn something new every time you're on the property, especially if you're tagged out and, and, you know, even if it's still in season, if, if, if you can get around on your property and even if it's just driving the, driving the trails seeing seeing where those deer are crossing over you know you want to figure out where they're going where they're coming from um there's there's no better time to do that than right after a fresh snowfall so i i I recommend doing that as far as inventory goes you know um it's always uh you know it, it might be something where like mass surveys people think about mass surveys as being a something you do in the summertime but if you're out there walking around and you see a couple of red oak trees that are all all scratched up underneath them, you know, there's a reason those deer are there. That's a, that's a good late season food source. A lot of people just walk right past. So just just being aware of your surroundings, being boots on the ground, you can you can start to tease apart the, the deer's behavior on your particular farm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's one thing I know with having a, just a small property of 15 acres that, that I've really noticed myself, you know, in the past, I've always hunted larger tracks of public land but 
man, with a smaller property, uh, you, you really get a chance to, to learn, you know, every inch of that property. And like you said, really, you can get out there and, and pick up on so much in a really a fairly short amount of time with just like you said, you know, what trees are drop good from year to year and, and what trees do the deer seem to favor from year to year. And there's a, there's a lot of information to be gained. Even um, even like expect where I was hunting in uh, Ohio this year, um, they had some big storms. I think there's a tornado went through close by earlier in the summer, and there's just so many trees that fell down. Like it was it was remarkable. Just huge red oaks, and sycamores, and some of the old ash trees that were still standing. Like everything was just blown over, and it, it made a mess. I can't tell you how many deer I jumped out of those areas. <laughs> if if I wouldn't have been out there on my feet walking around, I wouldn't know those trees were on the ground. I wouldn't know there was a bedding thicket mother nature made for me right there. You know, like, yeah, yeah. it's it's just a matter of getting boots on the ground. And I think that's something a lot of landowners kind of hesitate to, especially with those smaller properties, like you're talking about managing where you get scared to, to blow deer out of there. Like you might not think it's worth the, the information you're able to obtain, but you know, it, it, it's a balancing act. It's, the same thing goes for shed hunting. You know, it's one of those things where last year, I, I didn't do great on my property shed hunting. And I think a lot of that was, I didn't listen to my own advice about, you know, waiting until majority of the antlers are already on the ground. I, my consulting season was getting ready to ramp up and I thought I was going to miss out on them. So I was in the woods too much, too early looking for sheds. And I feel like I did hurt my property in that regards where they weren't dropping antlers on my place. So it's, it's, it's a balancing act between timing and, and is it worth it? Is it not? Is your season over? Have you tagged out? Do you got more hunters coming in? There's all these different variables and it's up to the landowner about coming up with the best possible idea of when's a safe time to go in there and, and, and navigate. But that said, if you go in there and you bust a deer out of your property in, in December, like that deer's not gone. You know, you got another season right around the corner. So that's right. Well, sounds like, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say a a lot of what you're talking about, at least here at the the start is, is about, you know, planning, uh, planning and, and inventory, which, you know, brings me to think of, you know, a, a management plan. And I guess, you know, how, how important is it to have a, actual formal written management plan for a property or it is it's it's crucial it's the same deal like when i'm sitting down i'm writing articles and stuff if i don't first sit down and get an outline on and get an outline out that my word count's going to be three thousand words over what it's supposed to be. you know <laughs> like you start meandering and you start right. getting all these side projects and like if you got a, a well-written management plan right there in front of you where it highlights everything you need to do. And like one of the things I like to do at the end of most of my plans is put together like a calendar of sorts where I can keep you, you know, the first three months of the year, next the spring, the summer, the fall, like kind of keep you on track as far as what needs to be done, what time of year and what's going to have the biggest impact on your place. Because I mean, truth of the matter is if, if you're tight on time, I mean, if you got a tractor and a disc and some open ground, you can just do some, some late season, you know, disking and you're going to improve the property greatly with, with minimal input. You know, you're, you're only paying for fuel and time and you can produce some great, um, some browse out there on, on the landscape that might not be there at the moment. You know, you don't have to overthink as far as inputs go, but getting a plan, a plan put together, where you can sort of break the property up into sections and say, okay, this, this coming week, I'm going to work on invasive species over here. Or even just looking at the maps on a management plan, right? Like, okay, you got a lot of tree heaven in that area. 
that's something I should focus on. Or it, it all just it, breaking that property up into sections and having a digestible step-by-step approach as to how to tackle those just makes it seem more feasible. And, and all of my clients reach back to me and they're, they're all greatly appreciative of how thorough I am in my plans as far as how to get those those plans done, you know, I'm not just going to tell you to go make a bedding thicket cut in this area. I'm going to walk you through, what do I like my bedding thickets to look at? How many trees do I cut? What species do I cut? Do I hinge any? How many do I hinge? You know, like there's so many variables and there's so much information out there, getting somebody in there and getting it all put together in one clean uh, packet where you can sit there and, 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 leave it on the coffee table or in your, on next to your commode, you know, <laughs> or you can just kind of keep up with what needs to be done. And I'm a big fan of putting up checklists, you know, if you got a, a chalkboard in your barn, that's all you need to kind of stay on track. So get, getting a management plan put together. Otherwise it's just all these ideas and it's hard to make sense of it. You know, you you don't right. know if it's working or not, but if, but if you have documentation of what you've been doing and along those lines, you should be keeping track of your management plans. Where are you spending your time? Is it working? Is it not working? Are you going back and checking your TSI projects? You know, it, it's all part of that inventory. And I guess how how long of a period should a, a typical management plan cover? I mean, I know we're talking about you know making plans, annual plans to to mm-hmm. work on our property, but um, so is this just an annual? annual management plan that you're going to have and you're going to kind of renew it every year or are you talking more of a long-term document? It's long-term. I've had some clients come close to getting everything done in, in a year or two. Um, those, those guys are kicking butt out there getting it done, but it, it's one of those where it's always going to be something, you know, even if you do get a timber sale done, somebody comes in and you get it kind of looking and do a shelter word cut where you want it and everything's going good. You still got to keep up with the invasives that are creeping in. You know, you still got to go back. Are you going to run a fire through there and kind of set it back every couple of years? Like there's still things you can be doing. It, 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 yes, I'll get you on the right track for that specific year, but I also have your long-term goals in mind. You know, if I do something like planting a, a, an orchard, you might not get a, a persimmon or a plum out of that orchard for three to five years down the road, but you got to do it if you ever want it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed actually with the with my progress on just my little 15 acres here because <clears throat> again I, my background is is managing um, public lands so you know I've been on areas 10,000 plus acres that, that I was yeah. <laughs> responsible for and and you know getting all this work done but then you have your own little piece of property and uh, man it's I thought. Going in when I, when we bought the property, I thought you know I'll go in here and knock out everything I want to do the first year, and it, you know just just be enjoying it after that. But uh, we obviously with maintenance, you know, it's always you're never finished when it comes to habitat work. But but I thought I'd get all this stuff done, and and I've definitely uh, opened my eyes to when it's not your full time job, and and you have all these other responsibilities too. It 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 takes time, even on a small property. I even run into that and it's my job, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm traveling all over the country telling everyone else how to manage their place. And then I get, I get home. I might have a week where I got some food <laughs> time in the summertime. I'm trying to do all my food plot stuff in one week. And you know, it, it happens. And I, I don't want my clients to ever feel stressed out or any, any land manager for that matter. You know, it, it's something we all do this because we enjoy it. And yeah, absolutely. Taking care, taking care of the land. Um, 
just seeing that's that's the reason I like habitat work in the first place is I might have mentioned it in the first podcast, but my first job, I was working as an intern uh, for the West Virginia DNR. And we went through and we did a, an edge feather on, on part of the project on like my first week on the job. And uh, we went back at the end of the summer where that edge feather project went on and just seeing how different it was, you know, all, yeah, all the trees are on the ground. Well, lot, all the ones we cut are on the ground, but just the response, all the, all the brambles that were trying to, to make a living there on, on the edge of the field, all of a sudden the, the raspberries exploded, you know, and in the dogwoods, their canopy looked like it was twice as big as when we made the cuts. And, you know, mother nature does such a fantastic job of, of using, you know, it just needs a nudge in the right direction. So as long as you're responsible with how you're, you're making these disturbances happen, like I talked about earlier with the strip disking, strip disking, it's a very minimal as far as uh, cost and time and, but it has great results. So, so what areas of your property can you benefit when you, when you're strapped on time, as far as like uh return on your investment, you know, there's, there's plenty landowners can do aside from like filling a feeder with protein. Powder. <laughs> no, like there's yeah, so yeah, much stuff out there. You can, you can keep, keep maintaining. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into some of that stuff. We we've talked about, you know, the, the planning process and the importance of that, but <clears throat> let's kind of dive into some actual, hands-on habitat work that that folks could be thinking <clears throat> excuse me dang <clears throat> but uh let's dive into some actual maybe hands-on habitat practices that that folks could be uh doing you know this time of year or sometime here in the the near future what are some of those things they could start working on you mentioned i guess let's you already mentioned strip disking there is that something they yeah. could be doing this time of year and and kind of how does how do you implement that yeah, absolutely. So I'll break it up into the open land management and kind of uh, closed canopy management uh, for the sake of staying a little organized with with this. So uh, with the, with the open land management, I'm a I'm a huge believer in in native grasses and uh, prairie restoration sites, wildflowers. I, I love open land management, um, and I, I think I like it just because the timeline is is so much shorter than than your silviculture practices as far as as seeing the results you want, but with open land management, I mean, this time of year, you, you got to be start thinking about, okay, how do you want to manage these these fields and your food plots, you know, going out and inventorying those food plots? Do you have exclusion cages out there? How much are they hammering your clovers? Do you have enough, you know, cool season plots in the ground? Or do you have too much? I know on my property, I look around, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're never going to eat all of these soybeans. <laughs> <And this laughs> I'm going to have volunteer corn popping up everywhere. And it's it's one of those things where I can figure where's the sweet spot you know if they're really hammering and last year it felt like they they'd hardly touched the clover and they're really hammering those beans so those deer are different from year to year and you can't always keep up with it but but kind of those large scales if you already got land open how are you going to best manage those you know the other year i went in and and i decided okay we have all these acres planted and a lot of them are right we're down in the bottom where all the all the fields are in, in the low spots next to the county road running through our property so i'm not going to be planting food plots on these fields right next to the county road. You know, I'm just right. asking for something bad to happen. So I went in and I, I planted a lot of those fields. I, I took them out of food plot production. I put them into native plantings, you know, and I, they're all, I mean, it, it's a struggle with Johnson grass and, you know, the the foxtail and there, there's some grasses and stuff that I'm, I'm still battling. The uh, Lespedisa in those fields is, is something I'm constantly battling, but you know what? I have great habitat there. I find more sheds in those, those, um, 
areas of native grasses and stuff than I find anywhere else on my property. And it's, it's less work for me in the long run. So figuring out what you're doing with your open ground, um, adjusting your food plots accordingly, moving into the future. So is there any, you want to extend your, your perennial plots? You want to, you're going to frost seed, um, some clover into some new areas. You know, what, what's your game plan there? Are you shifting warm season and cool season food plots anywhere? Are you just going to leave? If you got too much corn, let it go fallow for a year. That's one of my favorite things to do. If I have the acreage, just leaving a fallow cornfield to go for a year. It's great habitat. There's open ground. You know, those turkey poults got room to run around in there. Those can drop their fawns in there. It's, it's a great management practice. And again, it, there's not much investment on the landowner's side. Just leave it alone. Leave it right. stand. Um, and, and then shifting to managing those natives um, with the strip disking or your hay fields or whatever, your old field management. Strip disking is a great practice. It, it's low cost, high reward, you know, 10 to 15 foot strips alternating. You can just do the middle of the field. You can, you can do curly cues, circles, smiley faces, whatever. <laughs> you're just trying to break up the monotony. All you're doing is kind of blending that soil and giving some of those, those, those seeds that are in the soil in that seed bank, you're giving them a chance to, to germinate this coming spring. So strip disking is a great practice. If you got any mowing that you need to do, um, get it done before those turkeys start nesting, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, get, get your mowing out of the way. Um, you know, in, in same thing with prescribed burns, you don't have to wait until the day you, yeah, you can go in day of the burn and mow a fire break around it. Or maybe it's something where you, you just keep it mowed throughout the winter until conditions are right. Then you're ready to go, you know, get, getting those, those burn areas situated. Um, in, if you're in deep south around you, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't burn after mid-March because those turkeys are probably going to start nesting around then, you know. You, you move a little bit up to my neck of the woods where I'm at in Kentucky, Tennessee area. Um, yeah, I could probably get away with burning or mowing through beginning of April. But when you get up into the northeast and the Midwest, it, you're looking at you got a longer window until those turkeys start to nest. You might have until May to get your 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 mowing done. So adjusting what you're trying to do based on where you're at and when those critters are, are getting ready. Same thing with fawns dropping. You know where I'm at. Fawns are typically hitting the ground around the, the first of June. And so I try to get my mowing done either before then or a couple of weeks after where those fawns aren't going to get ate up by the brush hog. Um, time, timing everything, it, it, it's a balancing act. So that's, that's one thing I like doing with my, my open fields. Another one that um, I got a lot of my, my clients do, and especially if they're in areas like Missouri where you got some quail hanging around still, there's some areas in Kentucky, Tennessee. Um, it's a great time of year to get out there and, and transplant shrubs. If you have some open land and you want to make a hedgerow, you know, go around your property and start digging up some of your, uh, your hearts of burst in or your beauty berry, your, your dog, you can dig up those small seedlings and, and put them in the ground this time of year. And, and not all of them are going to make it, but for the five minutes it takes to do something like that, you can start building some of those hedgerows up and, and, and breaking up the, those open fields into into smaller sections, which I'm more about. We're trying to, you're trying to milk your property for all it's worth. So the more diverse you can make an area, whether it's, strip disking a smiley face into the middle of your field or and then planting it with shrubs whatever you're just trying to, you're you're trying to make little pockets that are they're going to be utilized by all the different species in the area so open land management it's 
you can do a whole lot this time of year. My my word of advice is just pay attention to when those turkeys are nesting and when those fawns hit the ground, you know, and, right. and sort of plan out your your plan of attack accordingly. Have you found you mentioned the, the native grasses and, and the shed hunting? Uh, do they tend to favor those native grasses for bedding? Yeah. So what I think is happening um, is uh, in I'm in the hollers in southern Kentucky and a lot of the time down there, we don't we don't have snow on the ground most of the year. And I, I think it's those deer. It is usually pretty windy down there. And I think those deer like on those nice sunny days, they like bedding in that tall grass where they can still get sunshine, but it gets them out of the wind um, is is my best idea. Um, as to why I'm founding so many shed, sheds in those areas. But yeah, they're, they're, they're bedding in and amongst that. And, you know, surprisingly enough, as much as I curse and hate Johnson grass, oftentimes it's in those big thickets of Johnson grass where they just got it all matted down and got a nice little mattress made for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But speaking of Johnson grass, I mean, invasives, that's an, that's another thing this time of year you can tackle. If you got a problem with your, your old fields and your, your early successional habitat with Johnson grass taking over, um, like I do in much of the, the mid mid South, um, plateau, it's an herbicide that I I've used the last two years. And, uh, I increased the rate this past season and man, it, it, it was phenomenal. It was hard on my switchgrass, but the Indian grass, the big and little blue stem is going bonkers in those fields and there's no Johnson grass in it, you know? (laughs) So it's, I, I burn the field, wait until it greens up in in April. And then once it greened up about four to six inches tall, went out there and sprayed it with, uh, I was about 10 ounces of plateau per acre. And that, that took care of the Johnson grass problem. So (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I used a world of, of plateau back when I, I worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife for a while. And we at the time that was, oh, gosh, late 90s, early 2000s. But uh, we were really on the native warm season grass kick, you know, converting mm-hmm. fescue pastures to, to native warm season grasses. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of plateau being sprayed to uh, knock that fescue back and, and get rid of it. and. Yeah. And that, that's another area where I got, uh, one client I'm thinking about right now. He's, he's an old cattle pasture. He just got rid of his cows for the first time last year. And so that's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to convert those, those, uh, pastures to, to native grasses. And I, I told him, I mean, those, those cool season grasses, you get a couple warm weeks in the middle of winter time. Don't be afraid to go out there and get a head start on it. Spray it with, you know, cleft at him. <laughs> If you get a, a warm spell late winter, you know, you can still have an impact on those grasses. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's one thing on, on my little property here, I've got plenty of uh, non-native invasives that I need to, that are on my to-do list to, to get rid of. Um, primarily, I got a lot of Chinese privet, a lot of calorie pears and some China berry. Um, I guess, you know, it's just a good time of year to, to work on that. And, and what's the best way to, to get rid of those? Yeah, absolutely. So with the privet, it's one of my, so I'm trying to think of the best way to, it's one of my favorite invasives to deal with for the fact that you can typically pull those smaller trees right out of the ground with your hands. But you know, the root structure is not real great. A lot of the times you can get in there and you can make a big impact, just ripping them out and turn them upside down. So the, the roots won't take again, but it's a it's a great time. The only thing I I, I I tell my guys is do not 
do not get, excuse me, do not get stuck in the, the mindset that you have to use Roundup for, for your cut stump treatments, because this time of year, it's not going to work. You know, it's, it's a water-based herbicide. And if you're getting those temperatures, I say if anything below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, get away from the, from the glyphosate and start using your triclopyr. Um, 25% triclopyr in, in your little squirt bottles is enough. Put a little uh, marking dye in it and uh, go to town because once you're using that oil-based uh, herbicide, it, it, it can take even below freezing. So, um, speaking of which this year, I, I did make the observation in the car a couple of weeks ago when I was driving around, um, one of my favorite things to do, I deal with a lot of bush honeysuckle and I know a lot of yeah, guys, yeah. I mean, my Illinois clients everywhere, Pennsylvania, the bush honeysuckle is a real issue. Well, I always tell them my, my favorite time to do, to treat bush honeysuckles during the rut, which a lot of them roll their eyes <laughs> at. but you know, early November, those the bush honeysuckle and the Japanese honeysuckle, for that matter, are still usually green and vibrant, kicking butt when everything else is dormant. So if you can get out there and you can full your spray on a warm day with your two percent Roundup solution, you can cover a lot of ground. Full your spraying that that stuff because it's still green, and then you don't have the collateral killing the natives, which have already gone dormant. Um, so you can get out there and cover a lot of ground. What I did notice this year, though, is about mid-October, the bush honeysuckle, for whatever reason, I guess, drought, like the rest of the native species, they started turning yellow early October, middle October. So what that tells me as a land manager, okay, they lost out, the bush honeysuckle lost out on a month of, of growing season and putting resources down into its root system. So if you got a problem with bush honeysuckle, this might be a fantastic year to get out there and hit hard because it doesn't have as much resources in its, in its root system. It just didn't have as long of a growing season. So bush honeysuckle, I'm, I'm telling my guys in Kentucky and Tennessee, get out there and hammer it as hard as you can this year. Cause I think it's, it's uh, already a little bit hobbled from the, from the drought this uh, past fall. Okay. So for, for bush honeysuckle this time of year, and as well as the others that I mentioned there, uh, best option is is to go in and just yeah. cut it off and spray yeah. the stump with a 25% triclopyr right. solution. Yep. That's what I like. Um, that works good. You can also your vines, your invasive vines. Um, I know they're a little bit more difficult to ID, especially without the leaves on them. Um, but areas where, you know, you got uh, Japanese is a bad example, Japanese honeysuckle, just cause there's so many vines, but stuff like wisteria or, uh, bittersweet, um, if you got problems with those vines or, or kudzu for that matter, if you can get in there and you can find kind of those main stems and kind of dig up those rhizomes or like with the kudzu in particular, if you can get that crown up out of the ground, you can make an impact that way. Um, but cut stump works just fine this time of year for the, uh, for those vines as well. So if you got a, a vine problem, you can get out there and you can have an impact during the dormant season as well. Okay. What about, uh, and I've never, I've never done basil bark type treatment is that something you can do this time of year or is that more of a growing season practice you, you can i i hesitate especially with a lot of these invasive species um the bradford pear is probably the one in uh jap or uh sorry tree heaven because they have a single stem it it works fairly well for those guys um 
but when you start getting into your bush honeysuckle or your autumn olive or stuff that's a multi-stemmed, it's it's just not worth it. You can't get good enough coverage to get a good kill on it. So gotcha. Cut, cut stumps always a always an option, but this time of year, I, I like getting out there with the chainsaws. Take advantage of the cool weather, you know. Okay. I feel like you get a better better kill. Gotcha. Kind of kind of jumping back to your warm season grasses. Um, what kind of for for somebody that that might consider, um, you know, planting those and, and getting those established on their property. What, what type of maintenance are you looking at with, with native warm season grasses? So if you're going to go in and you're going to plant them and establish them, the, the best thing to do is um, any, like my favorite spots for, for warm season grass establishment is actually old row crop fields. So something that's been maintained with Roundup Ready corn or soybeans because the seed bank's already fairly depleted. If if you're going to go that route and plant, those are the areas I, I like to take advantage of just because of, they've been treated for weeds for so long. Um, so if you're actually buying seed and going out to plant, I would think for areas like that. But with, with areas where you're just trying to say kill out the, the cool season grasses and get something to establish uh, with the native seed bank, um, killing those cool seasons. So get out there early spring before the warm season starts to green up and start start spraying your clefidem or whatever you want to use out there or even round up that time of year if you just want to get one good kill and then go in and, and disc to get some disturbance. Um, first year, I typically leave it alone. I might mow it. Even if it's planted, I might mow it, um, late summer to kind of keep some of those weeds suppressed. Uh, and then it's, it's figuring out what type of fire return interval. That's my favorite way to maintain those grasses. It's with fire. It's, it's the easiest, most cost timely. Um, so figuring out what the, the fire return interval is going to most benefit your management objectives. That's something a lot of guys struggle with where they want to like say, okay, every third year I'm going to, I'm going to burn every third year, which is, it's a good number. But I mean, the longer you're on a property and the more you get to play around with burning dormant season versus growing season, or, you know, waiting for the fourth year, the more you can mess around with it, you'll start to learn how those plant communities start to respond to different types of fires. So looking up at the immediate schedule coming up, if you're going to get some dormant season burns going, uh, you can expect your native grasses are going to respond very well. They, they like those dormant season fires. If that's not what you're going for, say you got plenty of Indian grass, which is what I'm dealing with on one of my fields. You know, the Indian grass is doing phenomenal. I got too much Indian grass. I'm not going to burn that field this dormant season. I'm going to wait until we get a drought this summer and I'm going to burn it then, uh, hopefully in time to green up before, before the, uh, early archery season kicks in in Kentucky. It makes another, another food source, but just being able to play with those and in mow or, or burn on, on different schedules or intervals. That's one of those things where if you are getting in there and say you strip disc an area and you only disc 25% of it, you can still run a fire through that. And it, it's just going to add an extra layer of, you know, those, those stripped areas aren't going to burn very well, but it's going to be a different type of plant community coming up versus the unstripped that just get burned. So you, you're, you're trying to manage a bunch of different plant communities on one one per acre, you know, so the more different types of management you can do that aren't too difficult to kind of maintain, the better. There's no right or wrong way to do a lot of that stuff for the most part. Have fun with it, you know? Keep keep wildflowers you see. Did did I mow this area? Did I did I diss this early in the year? Um, try to maintain that. And if if you find something that works, like say you're you're 
you want more ragweed. You, know, you got quail you're trying to, to manage for on your place, you know? Disking might be the only maintenance you need on that field, aside from a fire every couple of years to set back the woody. Yeah, while we're while we're talking fire, let's let's dive a little deeper into that. And I, I guess just at the the most basic level, can you talk a little bit about you know maybe for somebody that has zero experience with prescribed fire, they've you know seen talk of it, seen you know pictures of people doing it, but they really don't know anything about it can you just cover i mean what, what's i guess what's the purpose what's the benefits of burning um, not only native grasses like you were talking about but even you know maybe in a forested setting so the way i describe it when especially with talking about like open field management um you can get similar results mowing versus um burning as far as the plant communities coming up the difference is going to be the amount of thatch that you leave behind on, on the floor. So when you're taking a fire through, if you go through and you mow an area, you might get a ton of ragweed coming up or disc coming up in that area. That'd be great bugging habitat for, for your poults running around or, or your quail. Um, great food for, for your whitetail moving through there. But when you, when you get down on your hands and knees and you start looking around that layer of thatch you left behind for mowing, nothing can move around in it. You know, those small mammals, your mice, your shrews, your, your turkey poults, your, your quail, your, even your songbirds, like they have a hard time navigating down there. There's, there's no exposed earth. So what running a fire through there does is it exposes the ground and it lets, like, if you ever look at the legs on a little baby quail, there's not much to them. They're like toothpicks. So as you throw a couple blades of grass in front of that poor little guy, he can't get around very so what you're doing is kind of cleaning slate. You're doing a very controlled disturbance on the area. The, the heat from that fire will kind of shock those seeds and stimulate them to, to, to pop up. And you're just kind of hitting the reset button on them. So when I'm, when I'm talking about burning areas, you're, you're getting rid of a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the woody debris that's on there, your fuel load. So if you're, you're talking about burning in a woodlot or something, say you did, you did a bunch of TSI projects, you got all these, these treetops laying on the ground. If you can choose one to burn those as, as opposed to waiting for a lightning strike or something to happen, you can use up those fuels and kind of make future burns more successful and, and more predictable for yourself. So uh, again, you're, you're, you're stimulating the seed bank, you're, you're creating bugging locations for, for birds and um, your poults and everything. And you're all, my, my advice would be just, just get some buddies that are also interested in it. You know, if you got a, a cooperative, which is another thing I wanted to bring up, if you got a cooperative for your hunting ground and a couple of neighbors, you know, maybe you take turns, maybe you're all on a three year burn rotation and every year you guys work on a different farm in the area, part of the cooperative and kind of work through that way. Um, Another thing I like to do is check with the regulations, your, your, your state regulations where you're at as far as your burn laws go. But I always call the, the local fire department to let them know. You know, sometimes I've had it before. They might offer to come out because they got nothing better to do. You know, they want to participate in it. So the more right. boots on the ground you can have in the area, the more aware people are of what you're doing down there. Um, people like to help out with stuff like that. So just being safe with it. I mean, the, the biggest thing for a, a, a safe burn is low winds and high humidity. So right. <laughs> as long as you're following the guidelines and you're looking at say, above 40% humidity and, and stable low winds, you can probably get away with doing a burn anytime between now and spring green up. 
Yep. And good fire breaks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And even those don't always work. I have a buddy in Georgia and he, they went in and they bulldozed fire breaks and it still jumped the line. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Ended right up burning this. about 10 acres of his neighbor's property, but it happens. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've seen it happen working, uh, working for the state on, on public lands. It, it can, uh, it can definitely happen, which is why, you know, it, it's so funny again, I've over the years, I've been involved in burning thousands of acres and, and big acreage burns at time, you know, using helicopters and, and the whole nine yards. But, uh, you know, here I am, I got like seven acres. I want to burn on my own property and it just scares me to death. <laughs> but yeah, because the, the it, you more, know, it's a whole the different more help you can get. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm even going to go as far as this, this, that's on my to-do list for, for this year. It'll be the first time burning the property. And, um, I'm even, even though it's only, you know, like I said, probably seven acres, I'm probably gonna, and I got to blow my fire breaks just because it's, it's mainly just hardwood leaf litter mm-hmm. um, where I've been thinning hardwoods, but, um, I'm even, I, I'm going to blow some cross breaks to where it's only, I'm yeah, only burning it. like two or three acres at a time. Shrink and, uh, you know, yeah, I burn, burn my kind of perimeter strips on the property lines first. So I feel good about having that, <laughs> that area of black there. Right. And then, you know, I can burn the middle without without worrying about it going anywhere. So, yeah. And, yeah. and even something like that, maybe you only burn the one, two or three acre strip a year and just rotate that through and do a different yeah. three yeah. acres every year. Because that way, that's one of the most important things with burning, um, especially people doing like large, large tracts of land that, that they're burning at the open fields is if you're burning everything, there's you know, there goes all your, your bugging habitat. <laughs> you want to leave some areas where you just burnt up all those bugs that are currently living in dormant in, in, in that area where if you can leave half your field and burn the other half, you know, a lot of those insects and small mammals and whatever's living in there has, has a place to go and seek refuge during the burn. And then it's that, that other area starts to green up. You're kind of not depleting that food source that, that you're trying to build for in, for your, your, turkey poults and you're you know not not to mention the the deer bedding you're you're leaving out there like you don't have to burn every square inch every time you do a burn splitting it up into smaller acreages is there's nothing wrong with that and i actually encourage it oftentimes right yeah and that and that really goes for just about anything we're talking about here i mean the more you can you can break it up and, and kind of work in blocks the more diversity you're going to you're going to provide the more um variety and and habitat which you know, deer and other uh, wildlife thrive on. So, yeah, I always, I always talk. It's like, I, I love deer. I love managing for deer. It's my favorite thing. And trying to explain to somebody that doesn't understand deer, doesn't understand deer hunting, especially me as a, as a biologist, it's like, what other animal in, in most of the United States can I manage for that I'm having an impact on so many other species? You know, we're talking about deer management, but what is a deer like? They like edge. Well, what's an edge? It's two different habitat types coming together. How many, how many edges can you squeeze into your, your small property you're, you're managing? You know, the deer is not the only thing that's going to benefit. Right. Absolutely. What about uh, one one thing we haven't touched on? A uh, kind of a, a big subject and something. Again, I, I keep going back to my own property here, but this is uh, you know something I've been working on and and continue to to have to work on is uh, timber stand improvement or, or forest stand improvement, whatever whichever you want to call it. But you know, trying to in my case 
thin out my hardwoods and, and get some understory growth in what is pretty much now just a desert of of leaf litter. So or or was I'm starting to already mm-hmm. see some progress from from where I started doing this. But um, I guess talk a, a little bit about that about you know what is forest stand improvement and kind of what is what is the purpose in relation to improving wildlife habitat. So I'll start with with this. I, I actually I just sent off an article to Lindsay um, about about hinge cutting and how it, it it's funny to me um, how every every TSI project or forest stand improvement project that I come across on the on these property visits, it's always a hinge cut project. You know, that's people's favorite thing to do is get out there and hinge cut. Um, but there's so many other options and so many other that I encourage on a more regular basis than hinge cutting. It does have a spot. So when you're talking about your TSI projects you could be doing up here in the in the coming months, yeah, you, I mean, sure, if you want to go out there and do some hinge cutting, that that that's fine. But I think you'd be better off spending your time with figuring out your, you know, where are those red oaks I was talking about earlier that, that those deer might be pawing at trying to find those last acorns before they germinate this spring, you know, figuring out what areas of your farm I've, I've talked about oftentimes, like I was on a farm a couple months ago and there's one real long finger ridge. And if you're on the, the West side of that finger ridge, it was almost all white oak. You, you start going to the the east side and it was it was more uh red oak growing on that on top of that ridge and i was talking to the landowner i said this is this is your perfect setup yeah you got some chinkapin and some white oak intermixed with these red oaks over here but kill them (laughs) you know cut them down (laughs) girdle them do something and then same thing goes for the other side you go down there where those white oaks are 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 trying to be be the dominant species you know get rid of some of those red oaks get rid of those because when you're thinking it from a hunting perspective if you can have those deer know where the white oaks are dropping versus where the red oaks are dropping and it's not so much intermixed, you can be more productive as a hunter come hunting season because you know when when they're hitting those food sources, what area they're going to be in. So your your crop tree release projects, that's something. And again, you got to be familiar with, with your species. It's kind of hard learning winter dendrology um, for a lot of people getting out there when they're, when they're relying on the tree bark. But if it's something where you can go in during the growing season and get those trees marked in anticipation to coming in and releasing those trees, um, that's another way to go about it. So maybe you're maybe it might not be you're going to do the TSI project this fall, but come growing season, you want to get out there and you want to mark which trees you want to keep so that when the leaves are off of them, the landowner can can confidently go out there and be able to do these these crop tree releases or a bedding thicket cut. Um, in the areas. Like one thing I always have in my bag and I recommend people stick in their side-by-sides or their backpack or whatever they're, whatever they take with them in the field is some flagging ribbon um, or some spray paint, you know, marking tape, marking paint. When you get out there and you might see something, you might never find that tree again if you don't mark it. <laughs> right. Know? Right. Yeah. So just, just keeping that in mind and, and, back to the hinge cutting thing it's it's like not every not every tsi project is a hinge cut i I think you're losing a lot of the 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 benefits of doing just a a flush cut in some of those areas when i'm thinking of a bedding thicket and i want i want to potentially do a timber sale in that area in the near future if i go in and i hinge cut that whole bedding thicket you know that leave a couple trees standing around it that's not something a logging crew is going to want to have to navigate around it's dangerous um where as if you would have flush cut those trees, they'd probably be decomposed by the time that a logging crew got in there and, and wanted to work on your property. So 
it might take a little foresight. That's that's the hard part about doing these these TSI projects. If you're not familiar with your uh, with your tree species when they don't have leaves on, you're, you're kind of held back as far as how productive you can be. Um, but keep that in mind going into next year. You know, get out there this growing season with your your flaggy ribbon or your 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 tree paint. Get out there and figure out those TSI projects. Get them marked so you can go in confidently and and do those cuts here in the near future. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You you mentioned the the hinge cutting, and I didn't realize you were do you were writing an article uh, for for Lindsay on that. But yeah, I had that question specifically down to ask you kind of where you stood on on hinge cutting because like like you said there's some folks that are very vocal proponents of it and uh you know others that that are say it's it's counterproductive you know well here's so here's my here's my deal with hinge cutting i think people really like it because it's visual and it's satisfying so you get in there and i i think more than anything people really um the trees that you're typically hinge cutting aren't that big. So it's something you can go out there and you can do on your own. You don't got to worry too much about, you know, like getting injured. You're, you're working on trees, preferably the, the diameter of your, your forearm, you know, smaller, smaller timber. Um, so I think that's why people think they get motivated to go out there and do it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're doing it, like, why do people say they like hinge cuts? Well, it's, 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 bedding cover and it's a maintained food source for years to come well the same thing happens if you cut that tree completely off on the on the stump you know you're you're getting that tree on the ground you're creating a little bit of cover but that tree is going to stump sprout most likely depending on the species you know so you're still getting a food source coming there but you're not dealing with a, a live tree parallel to the ground that that you got to not navigate the other thing is I've been in areas where, where you do hinge cuts and you got to climb in there. And if, if there's ever a deer in there that gets jumped up by a, by a coyote or a black bear or whatever, there's nowhere for that deer to go. There's one way in and out just because of what a mess it can create. Um, so I think people need to just, just start flush cutting more trees. I don't know. When I'm doing a, a bedding thicket, for example, I try not to hinge more than 35, 40% of them. You know, most of those trees I'm, I'm just cutting. Um, or even girdling and just killing them standing. The one area where I do like, and like I, like I said, I, I, I do hinge cut and I do recommend it on almost every single plan I do, but I'm, I'm figuring out areas where it makes the most sense. My favorite way to utilize a hinge cut is what I would call a closed edge where I'm just sealing off an area from a deer being able to walk through. Could they get through it? Yes. But I'm thinking along field edges or even within a wood lot where I can drop a couple of trees in the same direction and all of a sudden create my own pinch point or funnel wherever. Um, that's how I mostly utilize my hinge cuts. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a barrier more than, more than a habitat improvement at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're cutting trees to open the canopy to sunlight on the fourth floor, then why would you leave hinge cuts are, are, <laughs> you know, counterproductive as well. Cause you still, like tree's still going to have leaves on it and, Still yep. going to be covering the ground, so um, yeah. And and one thing I have just from the the TSI work that I've been doing here on mine is, man, those deer absolutely hammer those stump sprouts on on a lot of the trees, like you mentioned there. Yeah, and and I don't know specifically what the nutritional value of a stump sprout leaf versus a hinge cut leaf, but I would imagine those stump sprouts probably have a higher nutritional content. Um, it would yeah. and like in my head, it would just make sense. They, there's less biomass that that has to navigate 
to keep that tree alive. You know, it's just a little tiny sprout. I would think it'd be be better for the deer. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I believe Mississippi state university actually looked at that and yeah, it was, there was more crude protein and some, some certain minerals as well were, were higher. Yeah. And those stump sprouts than, than in leaves from the, the tree itself, if you were to hinge cut it. So, yep. Yeah. Um, while we're, while we're on the topic of, uh, getting trees on the ground. One of the things I did want to bring up, if if you're looking at states and people always ask me about supplemental feeding, kind of my thoughts on supplemental feeding. Um, one of the best things you can do, especially in states where you're not allowed to feed, um, you get a late season storm rolling in, let's say like Illinois comes to mind, um, get a late season storm coming through. You know, one of the best things you can get out, do is get out there and just cut a few trees down. You know, you're adding a supplemental food source in the form of stems and in buds. You're getting that to the ground. You're creating a little bit of cover, but you're not going out and buying pellets and, and putting them in a feeder. You know, there, there's ways around if you got a really hard winter and I don't know what the rest of this winter is going to turn into. But like last year in particular, my, my clients up in, in northern Pennsylvania, they had two foot of snow on the ground for a month, it seemed like. And they were getting worried about their deer herd. And I said, I'll just get out there with the chainsaw and, and do some cuts around some of those maples I wanted you to cut anyways. And sure enough, they follow up a couple of weeks later and go look at it. And every single limb has been browsed on. You know, you, you don't have to overthink it. <laughs> just knocking a few trees down can can help sustain your deer herd, deer herd to get them through the, through the winter if it's real bad. Yeah, I, honestly, I just think I think there's so many hunters out there that still don't realize how important of a food source, woody brow woody browse is to deer, you know, how, how much of that they're, they're actually eating versus, you know, they, they'll look out there and not see anything green on the landscape and think, well, there's nothing here for a deer to eat, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. It just, uh, you look at the percentages of what a deer's eaten and come February and it's, <laughs> it's almost all woody brows. Right, yeah. I, I try to explain it in the sense that, you know, they're a ruminant. They're like a cow. They gotta, they gotta chew the, and it's the more lignin and the more woody fiber that they have in that food that they're eating it's going to be much tougher for that deer to digest and when you're out there exposed to the elements all all winter long you know the longer it takes to digest something the warmer that deer is going to maintain his metabolism's keeping warm so if you, if you can if you have good woody brows on the landscape you know it's kind of a nice buffer there as far as stress comes in the, during the winter time yeah well, I know this this is kind of the the million dollar question, I guess, when it comes to forest stand improvement. But you know, for the guy that that walks out there on his property and you know he has this this wooded area, man, how does how does he know which trees to cut and how many? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that is the million dollar million dollar question. I wish there was a, a cut and dry answer for that one. Um, the, the way I, I look at it is you, you gotta, you gotta keep the whole picture, the, your, your hunting, your, where your herd is at, um, how much food's on the landscape. You gotta kind of keep all of that in mind. And one of the things I often talk about when I'm on a site visit with my clients, now it might not be the case on a smaller property, like you've been talking about, but some of these bigger properties, you don't have to get in there and maintain every square inch of that property. I think that's a big misconception people fall into where they become to get overwhelmed, where they might have a couple patches. Say you do have a patch of bush honeysuckle, or you have an overstocked woodlot. 
and you want to get in there. And yeah, as far as the, the, the you got to let's go with the overstocked woodlock. You know, the, the trees are starting to grow. They're all starting to get a little sick because too many of them, too many stems. They're all competing with each other. Deer aren't spending a lot of time in there. You could go in there and you could do a select cut where you're going in. Okay, there are some oak in here. I'm going to leave the oak. I'm going to cut the, the the maple on the beach and get some of this junk out of here that I don't want. And yeah, you can make that more. Uh, you can make that area much much better and much uh, more beneficial for the for your deer herd. But what are you doing from a hunting? side of it you know do you have to walk past that area to get to your favorite hunting stand or all of a sudden you you creating bedding habitat along your entry and exit route to your property so i talk about leaving some sort of a buffer strip areas that aren't you know the best prop the best habitat on your property but they might be the best way to access a stand so kind of leaving some of those areas alone and that's the bouncing act i'm talking about you leave a buffer strip where you don't have a bedding thicket or a tsi project right along where your your main navigation routes are on your property um that's okay you know (laughs) you're you're not going to shoot yourself in the foot by by jumping a deer every time you're trying to get to and from your stand um so just being being diligent about where you're doing these TSI projects. Um, when I'm doing a bedding cut, a bedding thicket, I'm aiming for 80% sunlight to hit the forest floor. That's a lot. You know, most people get in there and they think they're done with the bedding thicket and they look up and they might have 40% sunlight, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to get down to that 80% sunlight. Um, so areas like that, that's what I'm looking for on a, on a crop tree release. You know, the, the magic number is, whatever is in the what's competing with the crown space of the tree you're trying to promote you know it might be one tree that you need to do a a hack and squirt on it might be three to open up that canopy um but just sticking to what you're doing that day in that area um that's that's my (laughs) best advice you know if you're going out to do a tsi project and work on invasive species stick to one area get that job done it's when you start trying to jump back and forth between doing three different things whether it be killing invasives and then going in and doing opening up the canopy and then coming in final step and doing some hinge cuts in there you know like you can get lost in trying to accomplish all of those things or if you had three separate trips out there and do one thing each time you know you can get the job done more efficiently um and and the other thing i want to say about doing these tsi cuts um get the invasive species under control before you open that canopy up. That is so important. And a lot of people are, I mean, if, if you go in, say you got some, some bush honeysuckle or Japanese honeysuckle or some vines or multi-floor rose, whatever, whatever demon you want to throw in there, if that's already in the area and you go in and you open that canopy up, you might end up with nothing but multi-floor rose in your bedding thicket. Um, so trying to get a handle on that before you take the chainsaw out is, is, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how important that is. It's going to make your life way easier in the long run as far as maintaining these areas. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And yeah, I'm, I'm right there, uh, <laughs> right there where you were talking about with the, uh, you know, uh, back here on the the back of my property where I've been doing the, the, the FSI work, you know, I've, I've thinned it back. And then, you know, I go back there and I'm like, nope, this, I haven't done enough. <laughs> I got <Yeah>. to <laughs> cut more trees in it. And it's tough because what mainly what's left are are fairly nice oaks, but you know I, I've killed some of those too, and I know some yeah. people cringe when they 
You want me to do that, what? But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know they cringe, but you know, you got to get that sunlight on the fourth floor. I'm still leaving my best oaks, you know, my best white and red oaks. I'm trying to, yeah. you know, provide a variety there and, and pick out the ones that are, are seem to be producing the best and, and, you know, have the best appearance to them and, uh, you know, taking out the rest. But, but yeah, it's sometimes you definitely may go in there and do a cut and then, you know, once you see the results, realize, well, you know, I didn't do enough, but I guess yeah. that's better than the other way around, you know, go in there and cut a bunch of stuff and then realize, whoops, I, I overdid it. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing left. Yeah, <laughs> And it's funny. And all of this is so subjective. And I like, there's one example that comes to mind. I was with the client and we're walking out and I was telling them, yeah, you might have to kill some of these oaks just to make sure the other ones are, are more productive. And we're standing there next to two oaks. And I'm like, which, which one would you cut? You know, they look like they're coming off the same stump. <laughs> and I'm like, which one of these would you get rid of? And uh, he points to the, the one of them is kind of sticking out to the side, all scraggly. And the other one was like nice, straight, good looking tree, but a little small canopy because it was getting shut. The other one was growing out over where an ash tree had fallen and taken advantage of that sunlight, the gap in the in the canopy. He's like, I'd cut the the crooked one. Which is a good answer. It's a correct answer. But the other correct answer would be cut the straight one. The other one's already got a bigger canopy. It's probably producing more acorns. You know, a forester might not agree with me, but as a wildlife manager, I'm looking at the one with the bigger canopy saying, okay, that one's probably going to produce more acorns going into fall. You're not looking at it as a timber, as the value of that timber. You're looking at it, the value of those acorns. So it's, it's so subjective and it's, it, it, that's that's the fun part about being the land manager. You get to make those calls. Um, I love it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if future timber value is a big consideration, then obviously it's it's a completely different conversation. Right. With all this. Yeah. So. It's, yeah. And I talk to a lot of my clients who are, you know, retired. They're they're not worried about timber value. So it, it's all about what the landowner is, uh, what is what his management goals are. Right. Well, what else? What have we, I guess, have we left off anything major that, that you're working on or recommending your clients to work on this time of year? Uh, some of the big things don't really have as much to do directly with the habitat management, but things that people need to do as a land manager, just maintenance on your tractor. I'm like, I was sitting down earlier when I was coming up with, with my list and, you know, I got my, uh, my arms in the back uh, for the PTO, the PTO arms, there's something wrong, uh, where they always want to fall where I got, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a spring that's missing down there to kind of keep those PTO arms where I leave that lever. So I got to get that maintenance. Um, I got to go in and grease all of my equipment, put oil on my equipment. Does the hydraulics have enough lines in them? So just doing your, your maintenance on stuff like that, your chainsaw is the same thing. You know, do I need a new a chain this year? Um, do I need to take it to a, uh, small engine shop and have them look at my chainsaw. Um, those kind of things that just keep you going throughout the season. You know, if you're in a lull right now and you're still hunting and you got a, you got some time, you know, maybe it's worth taking that tractor to get maintenance or taking your chainsaw in, um, in anticipation to hunting season being over and really hitting this habitat stuff hard. You got to make an effort to do that. You know, along those lines, every, almost everyone that has a property has a barn. You, you walk into some barns and it's like you're in <laughs> a hospital room where everything's got a spot and it's organized and labeled and it's great. You walk into other barns, you can't find anything anywhere. So just being able to get in there and say, okay, how many tree tubes do I have this year? Do I have enough weed mats? 
what's my herbicide situation? Do I have to order anything? Um, this is a great time of year to get in there and just kind of get all your ducks in a row and get ready to hit the habitat stuff hard once the season wraps up. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, all in the all in the planning. And yeah, yeah. Um, trying to think what else I have. Uh, yeah, checking your tree tubes. Um, that's another one. If you're going to take the time to go out and you're gonna you're gonna plant uh, whether it be oak trees or plum persimmon whatever you got in those tree tubes get out there and and especially this time of year the 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 voles and the mice really have a bad habit of building nests inside of those tree tubes um so they'll either girdle those trees and kill them or what i've had happen often is um they'll just build nests in there and it holds moisture and it'll rot the the cambium layer around that that tree and it'll kill the tree that way so getting in there and cleaning out those tree tubes. Um, if you're in an area and that tree's not growing out of the top of that tube, um, pantyhose or some sort of netting over top of them. Cause, uh, keep the bluebirds out. There's, there's stuff you can do there. Um, putting new weed mats out on some of those tree tubes. Um, trees can be such a big investment and they're great. I love planting trees, but you got to maintain them. So this is, this is the time of year to, to make sure all that happens. Um, transporting shrubs. I talked about earlier. It takes no time to, I can think of one spot on my property where I'm, I'm trying to block visibility from the County road into my field. So I've been going around and it might only be 10 a year, but I'm digging up Eastern red cedar and I'm moving it to other parts of my property and putting it in the ground. And of those 10 that I move, five of them might make it five of them probably die. But hey, I'm I'm making headway. It doesn't take too much time. I'm being productive. And in the long run, it, it's really going to benefit as far as uh, shielding some of my food plots from road visibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I've been uh, that's something on, on my list as well here to do pretty soon is I've been eyeballing a bunch of small cedars in the hardwoods behind my house where I'm, you know, thinning timber. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I had the exact same kind of plans to to just start digging some of those up and, and building a screen around my house kind of sits right in the middle of our 15 acres off to the side, but in, in the middle kind of vertically. And so, yeah, I want to do a, a screen around the the perimeter of our, our yard per se and uh, screen the rest of the property. So, yep, that's, that's on, yeah, on my I mean, to-do there's, list there's, as well. There's no better, there's no better place to get them from than from the property. Yeah, right there. They, they were going to get, burn up anyway so exactly i ordered like 150 uh i've ordered a bunch of trees from this place and in tennessee and i planted 150 eastern red cedar along the road and uh i don't know 10 of them might have made it i don't know what happened um and they were just coming from tennessee you know so the the more local you can you can find those those trees and shrubs typically the better survival rates you're going to get off of them so yeah any other time you wouldn't be able to kill a red cedar but i know (laughs) when you're actually kind of planting i don't know i don't know if the county might accidentally spray it i don't know what happened to those trees but it was the second time i planted trees there i did uh virginia pine uh the year before and those got ate up by the deer so i thought okay i'll try cedar they're not going to want to eat that um that didn't work too good but but now they closed my road down so it's not open to public traffic on the okay traffic. i don't gotta worry nice. about it as much anymore nice <laughs> yeah uh, yes well. sir so like i was saying there's 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 plenty to stay busy with um this time of year staying organized getting a list together some sort of management plan put together as far as excuse me what you're trying to accomplish in this this year coming up um 
keeping keeping records one of the things we didn't talk about was was your record keeping as far as your harvest goes you know are you keeping good notes as far as your hunting and your success and your failures this year if if i had to keep track of uh, a couple things after you know post harvest you know the date you killed the animal sex weight you know i don't care if you're using live weight or dress just be consistent with it um age if you can you know whether you're sending a, a tooth off or you're doing that yourself um, but some of the really important ones that I, I feel like, especially like people who wait until the late season to do their dough harvest, see if she's still producing milk. It's one of the easiest things you can do to see how, if she was carrying a fawn, you know, just, just poke her at her once you're, you're field dressing her, see if any milk comes out. So see if she had a fawn all the way through hunting season. Um, and then I don't know if, if NDA still sells them, but you guys used to have those, uh, the fetal scales. Yeah. Yeah. I believe we still do. Yeah. I mean, if you still got those, it's just another, another data point. You can start to pinpoint when those does are getting bred on your property, you know, so you can adjust your hunting strategy moving forward, but, but keeping, keeping detailed notes on, on all your harvest data. Um, maybe, maybe this is a good time of year to organize all those notes. I don't know what it is. (laughs) You know, everyone's at a different spot in their, in their land management. But again, that's just one of those easy things where if you start building a habit of keeping track of that, it'll, it'll pay off in the long run. You'll start seeing increases in weight or decreases in weight or decreases in the amount of fawns that are are pregnant late or uh, lactating late season. You know, there's, there's a lot of information there. You can still learn this time of year if your season's still open. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I know, you know, for some listening, this may seem overwhelming. So much, so much stuff you can do. But, the, you know, the thing is just um, do go into this year and do, you know, do one more thing than, than you did last year or two more things or, you know, whatever the case may be. But you don't have to do everything in one year. You know, you don't have to take on more than you can possibly accomplish. But, uh, you know, just just try something, maybe something new this year. and uh, Yeah, and just. Just think about how your hunting season went. You know, what what were the factors that that made it a hard season? Did you not have enough cool season, like greenery on, on your property this time of year? You know, does your neighbors, your neighbor might have more, more cool season food plots and he might have had a great year and all the deer are kind of gravitating over there. Well, next year, you know, you know, try something different moving forward. Or maybe it was just a, a bonkers acorn year and everybody had a bad year. <laughs> you, you never know what it's going to be, but kind of keeping up. And, and I think when every, all the information is fresh in your mind based on how your season panned out, you know, where, did deer keep winding you in your favorite stand? Are they all of a sudden navigating a different direction? Or like me, there's a, a big community scrape in, in one of the haulers on our property. And, and I, it's impossible to hunt. You know, the wind is just going crazy in there. But I like keeping track on it because it, it's huge. It's like the size of my truck, <laughs> you know, it's this Volkswagen bug. And, you know, like every year it's there. It wasn't there this year, but it's been there the last five years. So those deer kind of, they, they moved that big scrape. I don't know where, where it ended up or it might have just disappeared altogether, but it's not there anymore. Um, that's all stuff you can, you, information you can gather and use moving forward, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a... Uh... It's a never ending process. I mean, it's just something that, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to work on every year and, um, like you said, ev- evaluate and, and make changes as, as necessary moving forward. But man, it's so rewarding. It's so much fun. It just, I mean, 
I've, I've been keeping a list of all the, the new songbirds, even I've been seeing showing up on my farm since I started doing all this native grasses and, and the habitat improvements that way and more, more TSI projects. And it, it's amazing. You know, even if that's my only litmus test or scale, um, the last couple of years, I'm seeing a drastic increase in, in more different warblers showing up and utilizing the property. A couple of different sparrows this past year I saw, you know, it, it tells me I'm doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Zach, man, thanks so much for taking time out today. I know we've kept you on here for <laughs> for well over an hour now. And uh, man, as always, enjoyed it. Love, love talking habitat. And uh, yeah, I think. I think we covered it covered a lot of ground today that hopefully will be beneficial to to some of our listeners. So I appreciate yeah, that. Anyone got any questions? Don't ever hesitate to reach out to me. I'm easy to get a hold of. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was gonna gonna ask you for for any uh, for the folks that would like to maybe keep up with with what you're doing online, or maybe would like to reach out and and contact you for a consultation. Uh, what's what's the best way for them to do that? So if you go to my website, uh, whetstone habitat, W H E T S T O N E habitat.com, um, fill out a, um, form submission, uh, tell me a little bit about your property. It'll send me an email. We can connect that way. Um, Zach Z A C K at whetstonehabitat.com is great. (laughs) You can email me there directly. Um, and yeah, just, uh, feel free to reach out anytime. My, my schedule is starting to book up for, 2023 season so uh the sooner we can get you in in there and, and squared away the sooner i'll be able to help making sense of all these habitat improvements for you <laughs> well good deal i appreciate it and uh yeah good luck the the rest of the season hope hope uh you get your dad on a the his first buck there on your on your home property i hope so too man it, it, it'll be fun all right guys that wraps up our interview with zach vakirovich Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter Hey, you can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.